to remain standing now as we read from our passage this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 from God's Word. And Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. For when they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. That the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't let this one fact escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned. Let's pray. Oh Lord God in heaven, we pray now that you would incline our hearts to the reading and to the hearing and to the preaching and then the application and obedience to your word. Lord, we pray that we would not be like the casual hearer this morning who looks into the perfect law of liberty where it discloses the kind of man that he is and as we look at ourselves in the mirror and find an honest self-assessment of the things that are in our hearts that we walk away forgetting Holy Spirit, open our hearts up to receive the truth with faith and love. That these words would then be taken to reshape us and fashion us according to the image of Christ. And that we would walk away this morning from your word as changed people who have been changed by a Christ who saves by grace. Lord, would you recreate us now as we hear your word proclaimed unto us. All this we ask through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It's a very rare thing, I suppose, but it happens occasionally that I remember something from a college class that helps illustrate something in the Word of God. But it's even a more rare thing when I remember something from a science class which I took in college which helps illustrate the Word of God. But there's one particular truth which I encountered as I took it a required geology class years ago in college, and that was the principle of uniformity. The principle of uniformity. Now if I get this wrong, you budding scientists out there can correct me later. But as I get the gist of it, the principle of, the, of uniformity is basically this. That the present and the future are like the past. The present and the future are like the past. And that principle was already outlined by a geologist in the 18th century named James Hutton who wrote... 
in examining things present, we have data from which to reason with regard to what has been. And what from has actually been, we have data for concluding with regard to what will happen thereafter. That's just a long way of saying what I just said. That the present is like the past. And when we study the past, we're able to calculate what will happen in the future. Now, these false teachers here in 1 Peter, or rather 2 Peter chapter 3, probably had no inkling of the principle of uniformity, but their premise is exactly the same. Look at verse 4. It says, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Now notice the basis upon which they asked that question. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Are you seeing here the premise that lies behind the unbelief? That God did not intervene in the past, and since He did not intervene in the past, He will not intervene in the future. God did not intervene in the past. God will not intervene in the future. Science tells us it is so. Christ will not return again. That's what Peter is tackling here. This is the false doctrine of the false teachers. And I want us to examine that this morning and show you how Peter refutes it. Let's look at our passage this morning. Remember, that's the big idea in the backdrop of this passage, but Peter doesn't immediately attack that. Now let's remember that for one whole chapter, Peter has been already at work on the false teachers. He has been telling us, sounding the alarm that they are with us in the church. He has disclosed their character. He has disclosed their future, which is condemnation and judgment. And then in the last uh, passages or parts of chapter 2, he really zeroed in on the character of the false teachers. And three things stand to mind about those false teachers just by way of review. He says they have a lust for a following, they have a lust for women, and they have a lust for money. Now some of those things are going to return, and we're going to talk about those in a moment from our passage. But now Peter transitions from the scathing rebuke and exposure of false teachers in chapter 2 in terms of their character, to now turn to the teaching of the false teachers. And I, and I warned you before, I said that Peter spends almost... The, the, the vast majority of his time in exposing false teachers by exposing their life rather than their doctrine. And I argued for that. I said the reason why perhaps that is the case is because mostly people are led astray first by their life before they are led astray by false doctrine. So now he's zeroed in on the life, and now he zeroes in on the doctrine. So first of all, he comes to the saints and he says, This is the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken before by the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What is going on here? Peter is first of all coming to the saints and he's saying unto them, you need to remember something. You need to remember the Word of God. As, as we have this, this large obstacle before us, 
as false teachers are rising up within the churches, as false doctrine is being proclaimed among God's people, he is reminding them that there is something which is central importance to them spiritually, and that is that they need to remember the words. Notice first of all here that he says the words are directed to the mind. He says, I am stirring you up, I am waking you up by way of reminder. The same word there that's used for stir up is the very same word that is used in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 24, where the disciples went down to the depths of the bow while they were in this turbulent sea and they roused Christ from his sleep. He's saying, I'm waking you up intellectually. He's addressing the mind here. He's saying, I'm stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder. And what does he stir their minds up with? Truth. He says, I'm stirring you up that you should remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior. Let's break that phrase down. He says, I'm, 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 I'm calling upon you to remember the whole word of God. The whole Word of God. This is the prophets there. He is referring to the totality of the writings from the Old Testament. The law, the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets. He says the whole Word is the subject of our focus. He says remember the words spoken by the prophets. And then he goes on to say the commandment of the Lord our Savior spoken by the Apostles. This is a very interesting construction that basically what he is saying there, when he says the commandment, it is a collective word. He is saying the substance, the doctrine, the teachings, all of the Christ taught, they are to remember. But he qualifies that. He says that commandment which was given through the apostles something very important for us to grasp here is that Christ spoke through his apostles. Now this is just an aside, but we have to say it right now, that what Peter says is there was a definite time when Christ was speaking directly to his church through inspired revelation. And that time was the time of the apostles. And I just want to say this right now. Get it out of the open so we're all clear about it. Christ does not continue to speak to His church through inspired revelation. There is no more revelation coming from Christ. All of the revelation that you need from Christ, Peter says, is right here in the words. The words of the prophets and the words of the apostles. Once those apostles disappeared off the scene through death, Christ finished speaking inspired words. This is a very important point that needs to be made today in the church against the host of voices out there where people are always saying, I got a word, I got a revelation, I got some new idea, Jesus is speaking to me. No, Peter says that Jesus spoke to the church through the apostles, and we have his words. So just take from that that 
uh, Jesus here, rather Peter is saying, there's no words coming, so we don't have to think about a new charismatic prophecies and tongues or inspired utterances. We don't have to listen to the Mormons who say they got a new Bible because some angel showed them some secret plates somewhere in the hillside that disclosed new things about what Jesus did in North America among Native Indians. We don't need to listen to Islam, which claims it has new revelation to the prophet Muhammad. We don't need to listen to anybody who says, I have a new word from God. We must be very clear about this. We must stake our flag upon it. The revelation that God has given to us is in the scriptures. And those are the words that Peter points the church to. No still small voices. No quiet times. No whisperings from God. No revelations from the trees or the rocks or the seas. God's spoken in his word. And Peter says, you remember those words. You remember those words. And this brings me to another point. Is that our faith is founded upon words. Our faith is founded upon words. It is at the heart of the biblical doctrine of revelation that God has communicated the knowledge of himself to his people in words. Notice what Peter doesn't say here. Peter does not say, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder that you should remember experiences. He doesn't call them to remember feelings which they had. He doesn't say, I want you to recollect that euphoric feeling that you had when you came to Jesus, when you were on the mountaintop high in a retreat. He says, I want you to remember the words. And the reason is because God has communicated the knowledge of Himself to His people in words and sentences. This is so contrary to what is all over the church today. People are clamoring to be heard because they've got a new vision, a new revelation, a new idea. Some way to get deeper with God by some new revelation or some new principle or practice. No, Peter says that's not how you do it. In the face of false teachers and false doctrine assaulting the church of Jesus Christ, Peter says the way to be grounded in the faith is to remember the words. If you want to go deeper with God in your relationship, Peter says there's one way through growing mentally in your grasp of the words of God. She said, I'm stirring up your mind. Why do we sit here? And I think it's important for us to take a moment to rehearse this. I know we do it quite often or, every, or intermittently at least. But why do we do this? Think about this here this morning. Why are we sitting here? Why are you sitting here in hard, chew, uh, hard chairs in a stuffy room and listening to one person speak? After all, everybody around us says that there's far more efficient ways for you to grow in knowledge today than listening to monologue. Right? The buzzword in the academy, the buzzword on the radio, the buzzword everywhere you turn today seems to be that you learn through dialogue. We 
we have a conversation, you give your side, I give my side, somebody gives their side, and we all just sort of dialogue together. And if we want that dialogue to be more fulfilling, if we want that dialogue to be more penetrating and insightful, then if we were in the 70s and 80s, we used overheads. If we were in the 90s, we had big PowerPoint displays. And if we're really on the cutting edge of knowing how to deliver uh, information to the use of technology today, we use interactive video. But again, Peter says that's not what the point is. You go back to the words, you grasp them with your mind. And God through the Holy Spirit unveils truth to the soul. He says, go back to the words. People of God, if you want to be grounded in the faith this morning, if you want to grow in the depths of the Word of God, you have to focus on the fundamentals, the truths of God's Word. I I say this because it seems to me that so many people are fascinated by peripherals. So many people are fascinated by peripherals. It seems that learning about Jesus and His words has gotten boring. Wasn't it so thrilling to come to Christ and hear that there's forgiveness in the shed blood of Christ? Wasn't it thrilling to come to the knowledge of justification by faith alone? That is, Jesus Christ kept the whole law for me and His righteousness is stamped to my account. Wasn't that? Wasn't that the first time you realized that you didn't have to walk around with a guilty conscience anymore? I no longer had to keep cleaning myself up and presenting myself anew to Jesus so that somehow God would would look down at me and finally find me appealing enough to have a relationship with? God took care of that in Christ. Why is it then that some, it's a strange thing that happens in the Christian life that, that after a while we get tired of the, of the fundamentals, of the rudiments of God's Word and we go to things that seem fascinating and new. But it's all over the New Testament that the apostles are continually having to go back to the people of God and say, don't be carried away by strange and interesting and fascinating doctrines. It's so interesting to me that at the heart of our worship is a constant call to do what? Remember. If you're sidetracked this morning in your spiritual walk because you are fascinated with some new peripheral as interesting as it may seem, I call you this morning to set the peripherals aside to come back to the words, the substance of the faith, to the commandments given by Christ to the apostles. When you do that, you're well founded against being deceived. Now this is a very long introduction, I know that, to the point of the passage, which is not about these things. And you may, Pastor tell you are carrying on about peripherals this morning. But you see, if you don't have the foundation correct, you're going to become captivated and ensnared by false doctrine and false teachers. Okay, let's dig into the passage. 
We said there was a principle here which they were using. Christ will not return. Now notice there's a doubt about that in verse 4. And they are saying, remember, this is the mocking words of the mockers. Where is the promise of His coming? Do you see from your own Bible now as you're looking at it what they're saying? Christ is not coming. Now let's look at them first of all. Line by line, verse 3. Here they are. Now you don't see this in your Bible, but trust me, it's there in the original. You see the verb right here in verse 1? I'm stirring your way up by... Uh, I'm stirring you up by sincere mind by way of reminder. You see that verb there, stirring you up? That is modified now by verse 3, knowing. It's a participle in the Greek. Peter is connecting... He's connecting the reminder now to new truth that he's giving you in verse 3. The reason why you need to have your mind stirred up because he says, know that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. See, the reason why we had to go back to the fundamentals, get grounded in the truth, be reminded that God's word is the foundation of our faith and all of our thinking and all of our life is because he says the time is coming when false teachers will come. And you say, okay, we don't have to worry about that because that's in the last days. last days. So let's not worry about that right now because we're not in the last days. Well, that's not true because the Word of God tells you when the last days are and Peter says the last days are every day from the time Christ descends into heaven until He returns. He says that in Acts chapter 2. With the prophesying and the tongue speaking and all that's going on at Pentecost there, Peter quotes from Joel 2 and he says that this now is the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that in the last days God spoke to us in His Son. It's the last days. And since it's the last days, what's going to happen? False teachers will come and here they are in the church. Mockers will come. So first of all, notice the character of these false teachers. They're mockers. They're mockers. They just poke fun of things. The thing that they poke fun of here is the idea that anybody would waste their life thinking that Christ is going to return. That's the mocking. They just make fun of things. They make fun of old, stodgy, fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christianity. It's kind of like today again, isn't it? If people don't understand your worldview, if they don't possess your worldview, if they don't share your worldview, if facts don't fit into their worldview, what do they do? They mock it. They make fun of it. They turn into satire. And they say it's stupid to believe these things. It's for weak people. And that's exactly how Christianity is mocked today. It's for weak people who are irrational. Mocking. But I want you to notice it's not the mocking from outside the world that Peter is referring to. It's talking about the mocking that comes from within the church. False teachers rising up, mocking. Secondly, he says, this is what they'll be doing, is they're following after their own lusts. And I already told you about those lusts, didn't I? Because Peter did. They have a lust for a following. Go back to chapter 2, you see this? Verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They want a following. And they'll say anything to get it. He says they will exploit with false, empty words. 
to all kinds of people today who in the name of Jesus Christ, who have big churches, drive fancy cars, have huge public media names, who say all kinds of things that are not true, preach false gospels in false churches because they're driven by one thing. They want followers. Secondly, it says that these people follow their lusts, which is a lust of sexual immorality. Verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. We already talked to you about that. We had that very uncomfortable, about 15 minutes in a sermon a few weeks ago, warning you against sexual immorality. These people follow their sexual lust. They have eyes full of adultery. I said that that meant that they looked upon every woman that they were pleased with in terms of external appearance and they had eyes full of adultery towards her. Sexual immorality always goes hand in hand with false teaching and false teachers. I don't even need, again, to go back to the headlines that are numerous where we see this happening on a grand scale in the church world around us. False teaching and sexual immorality seem to go hand in glove. Third, they have a lust for money. They have a lust for money. And again, in verse 14, chapter 2, Peter says, having a heart trained in greed, and then he compares them to the greed of Balaam the prophet who tried to curse Israel for money. So there's the point. He says they follow their lusts, and those are the kind of lusts that they have. Now the point of it is, connect that lusting to the theology. If you want your life to be about people following you, if you want your life to be about sexual immorality and scoring with new chicks all the time, and if you want your life to be about money, gold watches, nice Cadillacs, nice shoes, nice cars, big house, all the comforts of life, all the bells and whistles, if that's what you want life to be all about, and you will not be stopped by principle or anything, what do you need to do if you're a Christian? If you claim to be a Christian, what do you need to do? You need to get rid of a Christ who comes again as judge. There's, there's the way you do it right there. You get rid of Christ coming again as judge. Now I can do whatever I want because Christ is not going to judge what I do anyway. I'm in the blood of Jesus. All of my sins are covered. I don't have to worry about a thing. You can see how the theology is convenient for their life. You think about it, if Christ isn't going to return bodily and judge the world, why shouldn't you live like this? Well, the sobering reality is that Christ is going to come. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice how they propped themselves up in their unbelief. Now we're in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? They seem to know that Jesus promised it at least, right? They seem to know that the Word of God promises a coming. But how did they cut this idea out of the Bible? We tend to think of modern liberalism as the beginning of people taking the Bible and cutting sentences out of it that they don't like. But it's as old as the Scriptures. Modern liberalism has done us all kinds of favors today in the name of Christianity. We say we believe in a Bible that teaches that there was a worldwide flood one time. 
Modern liberalism says, oh, don't worry about that, because if there was any kind of flood at all, it was a local natural disaster, and a few people got hurt by it. Never mind the Word of God says that the waters covered the entire world, the tallest mountaintop, and they killed all the people there except for Noah and his family. Modern liberalism says, don't worry about it when the Bible talks about axe heads floating on water. It says, don't worry about it when it says that Jesus rose from the dead. It says, don't worry about it when it says Jesus uh, opened eyes and healed people who were deaf. It says, don't worry about any of those miracles because every time you read one of those miracles, you just read, you insert in there the phrase, profound religious truth communicated through some sort of uh, linguistic realism. Because that's how you read the Bible. You don't, whenever you read crazy things in the Bible about dead people uh, rising from the dead, don't worry about that. Because that's just trying to say something really spiritual and significant happened here. And this is the kind of language we're going to use. See, we don't have to believe crazy talk about a bodily returning Savior who comes in judgment. Because God's not that kind of a God. Maybe it just means He wants to have a deep personal relationship with you. Well, if you're going to read the Bible that way, you might as well not read the Bible at all. These people here, we're at the cutting edge of modern liberalism. Where is the promise of His coming? We know the Bible says that, but what you have to do is look beyond the words. And not really believe that the words mean anything. You have to construct some idea. And they made an argument to defend their position. Verse 4, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You see that? You see what enormous unbelief is at the base of this false teaching? The idea that everything has gone on just as it always does every day from the beginning of creation? What do they say? It looks like they're saying they would at least concede that there's a God. They would at least concede that this God in some way created the parts and just set them in motion and then Mother Nature took over after that. So they're not denying God altogether. Let's not get crazy here. They're not atheists after all. There's a God. He does something like put the pieces together. Not really put the pieces together, but at least He creates them so they can be put together. That's what they're saying. And then after that, God just left. Left things to natural processes. And so their argument is this. And you have to follow the argument because we're going to attack. Their argument is this. Since God did not intervene in the past by putting the parts of creation together, and since He does not intervene in creation after that, since that's what the past was like, we can be very sure that the future will be the same. God will not intervene in days to come. The future will be like the past. Now, look at how they illustrate that point. Verse 8. Now, it doesn't say this in so many words, but just look at verse 8. It says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day only. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Now, 
there's nothing explicit there, but why would Peter say that? What seems clear to me, the reason why Peter said that is because they're saying, God's not going to come because the future is like the past. And the proof that He's not going to come is that He hasn't come. Right? The proof that He's not going to come is that He hasn't come. How long has it been since Christ ascended into heaven according to the Bible? It's been 2,000 years. You see, since Christ has not come yet, they're saying Christ is not going to come. Frankly, isn't that an obstacle to faith? Isn't that an obstacle to faith? We have an invisible God who speaks words about things He did a long time ago and you've not seen any of them. And your experience is the present. Right? Your experience is the present. Your experience is that you live in a time when dead men don't rise. Your experience is that you live in a time when people are not healed from blindness and deafness by the touch of a hand. Your experience is that the present seems to just be controlled by forces of nature. Christ hasn't returned yet. All kinds of people have predicted Christ would return, right? God knows we haven't had a we haven't had a lack of those in the last 30 years. How many times has somebody in the name of Christ stood up, some crackpot, say, Christ is going to return December 31, 1976, so all of you sell all of your possessions and let's meet at the uh, outside of town at the local uh, hilltop. How many times has this happened? We've had all kinds of people saying he's going to return, but he hasn't returned. And so the church almost today doesn't even like to talk about the return of Christ anymore. At least a vast part of it. So the key for us this morning is to see whether the future is going to be like the past. Look at what Peter says. Is it true? Christ will not return because the future is like the past. Look at your Bible, verse 5. Peter's response to their claim is this. When they maintain this, what's this referring to? When they maintain this, the idea that the future is like the past, and in the past God didn't intervene in creation, he says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now just to see this, turn back with me your Bible to Genesis 1-2. Go back there with me. Genesis 1 verse 2. Remember what the point is. Their point is, is that if God may have had something to do with getting this whole uh, thing started, but He really didn't intervene after getting the ball rolling. God is responsible perhaps for the presence of raw matter, but that's it. He didn't intervene after that. Look at your Bible. By the way, I did like to hear the pages turning. 
I hope you're in Genesis 1 because you need to get this. I'm going to argue their point for them and give you a confident basis for believing Christ will return. Because the fact of the matter is the future is like the past. God did intervene. Look at your Bible. Verse 1 of Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Stop your Bible there. Stop your reading there. That's the end of a complete sentence in the Hebrew. It is a declaration. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's what theologians call first creation. Now look at verse 2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then verse 3. God said, let there be light. Now, why is this so important? Because what the Bible tells us is that in first creation, God created the raw material that the world exists out of. He created it all once. We don't know exactly when it was. It could have been immediately prior. But the thing of it is, first of all, it says God created the raw stuff. And then secondly, Peter, or rather, Moses tells you the conditions which were prevailing at the time when God began second creation. When God put his hands on the wheel of the world and shaped it into what we have here today. It was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That word waters is important. It's exactly the word that Peter picks up in 2 Peter. Form them out of waters and by waters, what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.5. Now look at what Peter has just done here. Just scan down your text here. Day 1. says God was separating... A light and darkness here. Day 2. Verse 6 says, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Look at day 3. Verse 9. God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Do you see that? The first three days of creation are about God forming the earth. And what is present on every single day of the first three days? Water. Do you see what the past was like? God intervened. I hope you all, I'm looking around your eyes to see if you get the point here. God intervened. Out of water, He formed the world. Peter's entire argument against them when he says very slyly and sarcastically, well, it must have just escaped your notice. Yeah, there was initial creation. God created the heavens and the earth, the raw stuff, the matter that the world was made out of. But then God intervened. And he kept intervening on day one, and day two, and day three, and day four, and day five, and day six. And then from the time God had completed the entire work of his hands, God has been intervening every single day in providence. But just in case it escaped our notice that God intervened in the past, Peter goes on to say in verse six, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by, by, by water. 
Here he points to the flood. He says, so you don't buy the fact that God was intervening in the past? Well, first of all, we have creation. Second of all, we have a worldwide flood that God instigated. You see that? The simple point that Peter makes is, you're wrong. You're wrong in how you apply the principle. The future will be like the past. And the past is full of notable examples of God sovereignly intervening. The, the past is full of testimony of God's constant and sovereign intervention. We know Christ is going to come according to Peter because God has made it a habit to intervene. What does this tell us this morning? Well, I believe it tells us that you cannot excuse your unbelief by hiding behind science. You cannot excuse your unbelief by hiding behind science. I've heard people say, I believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I believe that there was a man named Jesus who was a wonderful guy who, who lived 2,000 years ago, had, a, had an enormous following of people who was a very interesting guy and said all kinds of wise and interesting things. I can believe all kinds of things about this Jesus. But at the end of the day they will say, but you cannot force me to believe in the idea that God created the heavens and the earth. Because I'm too smart to believe in fairy tales like that. Because science says You see, all kinds of people who would like to hide behind the, the facade of science and say, well, science just won't, let me per, won't permit me to believe in the idea that, that, that dead people arise. Science will let, won't permit me to believe the idea that somebody could be healed of blindness or, or leprosy. And this is constantly being used as a reason why Christianity really should be rejected if it's a Christianity that proclaims the facts of the Bible. And they do it based upon science. One of the most notable rejections of the Christian faith in the history of the West is the rejection of Christianity by an 18th century philosopher named David Hume. One of the most brilliant philosophers in the modern age. And he completely rejected, even though he was in the church, he completely rejected the foundations of the Christian faith that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus rose from the dead. And here was his argument. He says, it's a miracle 
that a dead man should come to life because that has never been seen or observed in any age. You get the argument? The present is like the past. The past is like the present. If dead people don't rise today, dead people never rose. God doesn't intervene today, God never intervened before. And if God didn't intervene today, and God didn't intervene yesterday, God will not intervene in the future. And so we're left with two different paths. You can either believe in the Bible or you can believe in people who wear white jackets and look through microscopes. What are you going to believe today? Are you going to be leave the Bible and be thought a fool? That's one of your choices. Believe the Bible and be thought a fool. Or reject the Bible and be a fool. There's only two ways. Believe the Bible and be thought a fool and have people laugh at you and and scorn you and ridicule you for believing in a literal God who speaks literal words, who literally heals people, or you can reject all of that. But in reality, in God's eyes, really be a fool for denying God. Well, Peter wraps up our passage this morning saying three things that we're going to have to expand upon next week. So, I just invite you to hang with me a minute longer. Peter looks at that so-called illustration of the principle that that God's not going to come in the future because He hasn't come yet. You know, again, the future is going to be like the present. and the present, God hasn't come, so in the future He won't. He takes that up in verse 8. He says, don't let this escape your notice. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like a day. Basically all he's done is he's drawn the language from Psalm 90 and he said, God's eternal and you're not. Time is really... The way it's experienced with God is, is unfathomably different than it is for you. A thousand years a day, a day is a thousand years. Could have said a billion years a day with God, like a billion years a day is a billion years. I mean, really, it makes no difference. He's eternal. The way He experiences time is so radically different from us. But then He goes on to say, but don't conclude too much from that. Why is God waiting? Because he is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think I'm going to leave it there today. I think I'm going to leave it there today. God is waiting and patient because he wants people to come to repentance.
But don't miss the fact that He is coming. We have to look at this again next time, next week, verse 10. He's going to come as a thief in the night. But, he, but you see, the whole, the whole tenor of this passage now turns to something different. He's proven Christ is coming. And so pastorally, the, the emphasis and the shift and focus on the passage comes now down to you. What are you going to do with the facts? What are you going to do with what you've heard? To the unsaved, Peter is saying, now is not time to make preparations for going to play ball tomorrow. Now is not time to make preparations for parties on Friday night next week. Now is the time to listen to the sober message of the truth. Christ is coming. And He will come like a thief in the night. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? The only way to be prepared for the coming of Christ like a thief in the night is to cling to the cross of Christ. I don't care whether you say you already said you did that in the past and you didn't mean it. If the Word of God has broken into your heart and has touched you and has shown you you're a sinner and that there is a Christ who is coming to judge sins, you better take this message today and you better lay hold of it with all the faith you can muster and plead with God to give you faith to embrace this Christ. Because that's the only way to escape the judgment of the returning Christ. And secondly, if you're already a Christian... And you're hiding this morning. You're hiding behind a smile. You're hiding of what you think is a well put together, legalistic, self-righteous life. And yet you have sin in your life that you are not being forthright about. That you are not confessing. That you are not dealing with. If you are living in your own secret sin, you say, I pulled it over on Pastor Sotel. He has no clue I'm living like this. You're not prepared to meet a returning Christ either. You're not prepared to meet a returning Christ either. When the message is proclaimed that this Christ returns as a thief in the night, the uniform warning and admonition and exhortation of the New Testament is to Christians, be ready. I pray to God this morning that you who are in Christ are making yourself ready by a life of daily repenting of sin, by a life of daily confessing sin, by a life of daily clinging to Christ for salvation, and by daily taking up your cross, denying yourself, and serving Him. Amen.